Good morning again, everyone. It's good to have you here. For the last couple of weeks, we've been examining from the pages of scriptures the best way to enjoy God. And we discovered that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we find pleasure in him. God is most glorified in us when we find joy in him. A person's highest purpose in life is to glorify God by enjoying him. Now trust me, you won't have any difficulty enjoying God when you get to heaven. When you get to heaven, you're going to experience the highest state of joy, happiness, and pleasure, and it will be forever. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. We all will join the heavenly choir saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen? Amen. But while we're in this world, we will encounter various trials. And these trials will seek to steal our joy. Today we will look at the greatest threat to glorifying and enjoying God, trials, suffering, pain, hardship. These things are like locusts that seek to ravage, ruin, and rip off our joy in glorifying God. But I'm here this morning to tell you about a God who restores the joy that the locusts ate away. Amen? Now, the prophet Joel tells us about a time when the people of God had suffered a complete destruction of their harvest by a swarm of locusts. And this swarm of locusts marched like an army of insects through the fields, destroying all the crops. And the Bible even says that they actually multiplied along the way. For a period of four years, the harvest was completely wiped out. The locusts had eaten everything away. But after four long years, the Lord had pity on his people and said, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. The threshing floor will be full of grain and the vat shall overflow with wine and oil. You will eat in plenty and be satisfied. And bigger than these physical blessings that they had received from the Lord, that is their crops being restored, the Lord had restored their joy in the Lord. The, the Lord tells his people, you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. Now, in this modern world of insecticides, we don't necessarily have to be concerned about the locusts coming and eating our crops away. But we do have to be very concerned about the spiritual devastation that trials can bring to our lives. The greatest threat to glorifying and enjoying God is trials, suffering, pain, hardship, and loss. 
These things have the potential of ravaging, ruining, and ripping off our joy in glorifying God. As we encounter various kinds of trials, we must be concerned that these things do not eat away the joy of God in our lives, causing us to live in spiritual devastation. God wants to work deep in our hearts this morning so that we would have the confidence to know that there is joy in the midst of trials. The Apostle James wrote these words in James chapter 1. Hear now the word of God. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let, your, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That finishes reading God's holy and inspired word. Now, of course, we know that the Apostle James was Jesus's half brother. And after the resurrection of Christ, we see James living in Jerusalem as a faithful and loyal follower of Jesus Christ. As you plot along in the book of Acts, what you'll discover is that, that James actually becomes the pastor of the Jerusalem church. And after several years, the Lord inspired Pastor James to write a letter to his many congregants who had been scattered throughout the whole region of Judea and Samaria because of the persecution that came upon the church in Acts chapter 8. Now this letter is known as the book of James. And most scholars believe that the book of James was the very first New Testament epistle written in the mid to late 40s of the first century. Now that seems kind of confusing to us because we find the book of James near the end of the New Testament. But the fact is, it was the first book written. The first book of the New Testament written. Now, the letter begins with a brief salutation. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Now, following this brief salutation, the Lord leads the Apostle James to write about how a Christian should respond to trials. He writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, that's very interesting. The fact is that James didn't write about the early years of Jesus's life, the cross or the resurrection, even though he was intimately familiar with all those things. The Apostle James did not write about the church or church leadership, even though himself was a pioneer and an expert in that area. But rather, the first divine instruction of the New Testament is God's guidance to us of how to respond to trials. The first thing God wrote in the inspired word of God of the New Testament 
is to give you and I instructions of how to respond to trials. Why in the world would he do that? Because we all experience trials. Regardless of what decade, century, or millennium you live in, we all will experience trials. Now, before I get into the main topic of this morning's sermon on having joy in the midst of trials, I want us to focus on this, on this one phrase that we find here where the apostle writes, when you encounter various trials. First of all, I want you to notice that it's not if, it's when. When you encounter various trials. Know for certain, trials will come. You might live in a cocoon of comfort at this particular moment, but there will be a day where a fiery ordeal will come upon you. And you should not be surprised as something strange has happened because trials happen to everyone. Trials are unpreventable. I also want you to notice that it's trials. It's plural. You won't just have one trial. Once you recover from one, another one is on the way. You cannot forecast when trials are on the horizon. Let me just say it plainly. There's not an app for that. Notice that the phrase states, when you encounter. Trials will come to you. You can't avoid them, no matter how cautious you have been, no matter how protective you have been. Trials happen to everyone. You can be a helicopter parent, or you can be a free-range parent. But the fact is, you're still, your kids will still encounter accidents and injury. You will still end up in the emergency room one day. And when I share, I share this because people will say, but... I did this, or I did that. And then they begin to ask, why did this happen to me? I was, a, I was a good parent. I was a good husband. I was a good wife. I was a good employee. They say these things like being good is the get out of trials free card. And then I tell them, listen, everyone encounters trials. And then they look at me, not me. And I say, yes, you. When you, it's going to happen. Now, of course, we know that some trials are more difficult than others. But none of us are exempt. Trials are not a curse from God. We encounter trials because we live in a fallen world. We encounter trials because we live with fallen and flawed people, and that includes you and me. Now, of course, I'm not talking about things that you have purposely done, things that you have purposely brought upon yourself. Let me give you an example. A person cannot say after they made one bad financial decision after another, and when bankruptcy occurs, that they are experiencing a trial. That's not a trial. That's a consequence of making poor financial decisions. A person cannot engage in flirting and compromising situations, and then when things get out of hand, 
say that they're, in, they're encountering a trial. It's not a trial. It's the consequence of poor personal decisions. The Apostle Peter said it like this. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God. Notice how the apostle, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, differentiates there's a difference between committing murder, stealing, doing evil, and being a troublesome meddler. Because these things are a result of a conscious decision that we have made, and those decisions have consequences. But he continues, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. Why not? Because trials happen to everyone. It's during these times of suffering that the apostle says that we are to glorify God. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God. Now, back to our little phrase here. Notice it says various trials. Trials comes in, in different shapes and sizes. This is the way I've always understood it. You have trials, you have tribulations, and you have tragedy. Trials, that's just kind of like common everyday stuff. Tribulation is when things start getting intense. It happens over and over and over again, if you would. And then tragedy is when something terrible happens to you or someone else that you know. And I believe that this is what the apostle is talking about when he uses this phrase, various trials. That when we encounter trials, tribulations, or tragedies, we are supposed to handle it all the same way. Now, James here is not talking about temptation because he's going to address temptation later on in chapter 1. He's referring to the trials, tribulation, and tragedies that we experience in this fallen world, living with fallen and flawed people. I think it's fair to include things like verbal abuse, ridicule, unexpected loss of business, or losing a job. I think it's fair to include things like people casting insults at you or saying all kinds of evil against you falsely. I think it's fair to include things like a car accident, a house fire, or an unexpected injury. I think it's fair to include things like sickness, disease, and the death of a loved one especially the untimely death of a loved one. And these are just a few of examples of trials, tribulations, and tragedies that we experience in this fallen and flawed world. The point is that there's a various types of trials, but there is one way 
We are to respond to them. We should respond to every trial by seeking the divine disposition of joy in Christ. The divine disposition of joy in Christ. What I'm about ready to say to you, I in no way want you to think it's easy. There's no way I can lay my hands on you and say, Jesus, and you're going to receive this divine disposition of joy. Sometimes it comes right at the beginning, and sometimes it's something we have to seek after and seek after, knock for, knock for, pray for, pray for. But it's what we're supposed to be doing. We see that the apostle kind of wraps us up in this phrase, consider it joy. Consider it all joy. The, the, what the apostle is talking about is having a proper mindset in the midst of trials. This term consider it is basically take it into mind. Think about it. Don't trust your emotions to guide you here. Our emotions, if your emotions are any like, anything like mine, it will always rush to anger, frustration, and distrust. But the Lord is telling us to consider it. We need to take time to consider a spiritual perspective on the issue that is confronting us, the trial that is confronting us. We cannot allow our emotions to run away with us at this point or at any point, even though they are like a wild team of horses that wants to drive you to the abyss. Consider it. Bring it to mind. Think about it. When the apostle writes, consider it all joy, he is in no way suggesting that trials are enjoyable. That would just be stupid. He is not saying that we should disguise our pain and suffering with a mask of joy and happiness. That would just be, be fake. And nobody likes a fake Christian. I don't know if you figured that out or not. Nobody likes a fake Christian. I believe what he is saying is that when trials come, we should have a mindset. That God is going to make a way where there seems to be no way. Amen? I believe he is saying that we must have the mindset that God is going to give us the faith to endure. And he's going to give us the wisdom to know how we can enjoy him in the midst of a trial. And let me just say this. Finding just a little sip of joy when you're going through a midst of a trial is like drinking from the fountain of life. And sometimes the fountain is just blowing up on you and getting all over you and you're, woo, this is good. But sometimes it's just a little trinkle. It doesn't matter what, how much it matters. Are you seeking for the divine disposition of joy in Christ? If you do... If I do, he will bring it. He will give us the faith to endure and the wisdom to know how to enjoy him 
in the midst of a trial. I believe that the divine disposition of the believer in the midst of trials is joy in Christ. The apostle is not referring to some emotional feeling of happiness. <laughs> Rather, he's talking about a supernatural joy. He's talking about a work of God in you that overcomes darkness, depression, and discouragement. Because that is what wants to take you captive. It's the darkness, the depression, and the discouragement. That's what wants to get your head all around. And he wants to crash through that with a supernatural work in your life that dispels all those things. He is not referring to some momentary sense of gladness. What he's referring to is a supernatural joy, a work of God that overcomes trials, tribulations, and tragedies. He's not referring to some fleeting feeling of glee, but rather he's referring to a supernatural joy, a work of God in us that allows us to stay focused on glorifying God when we're marching through hell. That's what he's talking about. And the best example we have of this is Jesus himself. As I shared with you last week, Jesus' joy was to glorify his Father, and he would not allow the persecution of the Pharisees, the betrayal of a brother, a denial of a disciple, or the curse of the cross to take his joy away. No, in all these things, the joy was set before him, and he endured all these things to the glory of God. And the reason he did this is to give us an example to follow. So we can say, Jesus did it. Therefore, I'm going to seek the power of Christ in me to do that same thing. The same work that the Father did in Christ is available to you in Christ. That's the promises of Scripture. Now, maintaining this disposition of joy does not mean that we never grieve. It doesn't mean we never feel anguish. It doesn't mean that we never experience a heartache. That would just be ridiculous. Because we do experience those things. The Apostle Paul, he admitted that he had, quote, Great sorrow and increasing grief in his heart. This is the Apostle Paul here. He said that he had great sorrow and increasing grief in his heart. That's being real. But in the midst of our grief, we must confess that the joy of the Lord is our strength. I'm going to find strength in God. In God alone, in no other. Now, maintaining this divine disposition of joy, it doesn't mean, it does not mean that we never mourn. That would just be absurd. Jesus himself said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be 
comforted. God's word tells us, God promises in his word to provide for those who are, who are mourning a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. And he says, and those people, those people will call, be called the oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord that I may be glorified. So as we are mourning, we know that the Lord is going to comfort us and give us this divine disposition and do this type of work in our heart. Maintaining this divine disposition of joy doesn't mean that we never experience suffering. That is just ludicrous. The Bible even asks, is any among you suffering? Why in the world would God even ask the question if there wasn't a possibility that there is somebody amongst us that's suffering? If suffering isn't part of our daily lives, is any among you suffering? But the fact is, is that in our sorrow, in our suffering, we are suffering, but we are always rejoicing, the scripture says. Yes, we are experiencing suffering and sorrow, but we're seeking just a little morsel of joy in the Lord. Maintaining this divine disposition of joy does not mean that we never cry. That's just crazy. God even tells us to weep with those who weep. But as a Christian cries, as we weep before God, in us is the reality is that weeping may last for a night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Amen? Listen, and weeping might last for one night, a week of nights, a month of nights, a year of nights. I can't forecast for you how long the weeping will last. But I know this. If you cry out to God, he will give you a shout of joy one morning. One morning, the shout of joy will come. Weeping may last for a night. But a shout of joy comes in the morning. As we face these trials... The situation seems to be overwhelming. But we know that Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. As we face these trials, the opposition seems so powerful. But we know that the Bible tells us that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. As we face trials, we have a sense of feeling inadequate. But we know that the Bible says that our God will supply all of our needs according to the, his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You might feel overwhelmed, you might feel overpowered, you might feel inadequate, but we must seek God for a divine disposition of joy. And we must trust God's word. Our God will supply all of our emotional needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Our God will supply all of our psychological needs according to his, his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Our God will supply all of our relational needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
Our God will supply all of our spiritual needs according to his riches and his glory in Christ Jesus. Our God will supply all of our needs. Let us sink in. What do you need? My God will supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. Brothers and sisters, when trials come, they will test your faith. James mentions it here. Trials will test our, our faith that God really cares. Trials will test our faith that God is really in control. Trials will test our faith that God is really good. Trials will test our faith that God's word is really true. That's what happens. And as these trials attack your soul, the ammunition is to cause doubt, confusion, and bewilderment in your mind. For you to start thinking that God doesn't care, that he really isn't in control, that he really isn't good, and his word isn't true. It's an attack and it's an assault. But as these trials attack our souls, we ask God to give us a faith without doubting. A faith that is not double-minded or unstable. A faith that endures even in the midst of trial. Listen, we have to cry out to God and ask God that our feelings won't replace our faith. Because that's what's, that your feelings want to replace your faith. We have to ask God that our sorrow will not replace his sovereign love. Because that's what the trial wants to do. It wants you to sulk on the trial and the sorrow instead of resting in God's sovereign love. We have to ask God that our discouragement will not replace our devotion to Christ. Because that's what the trial wants to do. The trial wants to keep you in discouragement. The trial wants to drive you away from Christ. It's testing your faith. So what do we do? We ask God to use this trial as weird as it sounds. We ask God to use this trial to purify our faith. And to burn away all that is fake and superficial in our life. And the Bible says that we know that after we suffer a little while, the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Wow. What a promise. Blessed is a person who preserves under trial, for once they have been approved, will receive a crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Brothers and sisters, trials, tribulations, and tragedies are the greatest threat of glorifying and enjoying God. These, people, these things have the potential of ravaging, ruining, and ripping off our joy in God. Trials will come. 
In 2017, I almost allowed a series of trials that came into my life to eat away the joy of God in me. I almost allowed my emotions to take control. But I asked God to give me the faith to endure and the wisdom to know how to enjoy him in the midst of trials. And guess what happened? God showed up. He not only showed up, he restored the joy that the locusts ate away. God gave me a divine disposition of joy in Christ, and I set my mind that nothing was going to steal my joy in Christ. No, no way. The thief only comes to steal and destroy. No, he can't have that. You can take it, take everything, but you're not going to take my joy in Christ. I knew the Lord was with me in the midst of these trials. He was the Lord, my God. And he would not allow me to be put to shame because that's what he says in his word. And the same thing can happen to you. So I ask you, are you suffering today? Come to Christ. Are you experiencing a trial today? Come to Christ. The Bible tells us that when we get to heaven, the Lord will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no longer any death, no longer any mourning, crying, or pain. But Jesus taught us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So why am I waiting to get to heaven For God to wipe my tears away. Why are you waiting to get to heaven for God to wipe your tears away? Why don't you cry out to him and say, Lord, wipe my tears away. Do it now, Lord. Thy will be done in me on earth as it will be in heaven. Why should you wait to heaven for heaven? To enjoy Christ right here and now. Are you hurting and broken within? Jesus is calling. Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today. There's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows. And trade them for joy. From the ashes, a new life will be born. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar today. Because there is joy in the midst of trials. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we come to you today. Admitting the fact that we often allow our minds to drift, to be like the waves of the sea, tossed here and there, instead of purposing ourselves on your greatness, your power, your goodness, your grace.
your word. Lord, we come to you as flawed and feeble people, but we know that you are a great God. And Lord, we ask you today to do a deep work in us so that we might experience joy in the midst of trials. And Lord, help us, Lord, to always seek you over and over again until we have a taste of that joy. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, give us faith believing that there's joy in the midst of trials. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.